For the month of September and October, we're going to be in a series titled, A Church Called Good. It's about rejecting the toxic culture of celebrity and consumerism that sometimes engulfs the modern church, and instead embracing and nurturing a culture of goodness. Appreciate you listening. Back when I played high school football, a mere 30 years ago, um, <laughs> it's, wow, it's hard to believe, but uh, 30 years ago, uh, we had a pretty good football team my junior year. I played at Lewis County High School for uh, Coach Bobby Sharp, and my junior year, we went 8-2 and two that year. We won District 9AA, which was a pretty good district. There's only three classifications back at that time. It's a pretty good district, uh, and it was the first winning football season that Coach Sharp had at Lewis County. And any of you guys that know football, I got a picture of him, throw it up for me. Know any guys know football, uh, Coach Sharp's still at Lewis County. So he's still coaching there. And every year since my junior year, except for one, my senior year, every year since he's had a winning season. He's had like 30 straight playoff appearances at Lewis County, six undefeated seasons. The stadium is named after him. Okay, and I like to think that I started it all my junior year, <laughs> but may have a little something to do with coaching, but, um, but we had this thing that happened. We fell into this interesting pattern that year, and what would happen is we would come out in the first half, and we were flat, like we were just, we, I don't know, like if we were playing a really good team, we'd be down by a couple scores. If we were playing a really bad team, we might be up by a touchdown, but not like we should, like we should be really beating them, and so we come out the first half, and we're terrible. We go in at halftime, that man that I'm hugging right there chews our butts out, and then we come back out at the second half, and we win the game. And we kind of, it, it kind of got to where we looked forward to it. If you understand what I mean, any of you who played sports understand what I mean. Like, we were expecting, we were expecting to be flat in the first half, and then as we were going in at halftime, we're like, yeah, but Coach Sharp's going to chew us out, and as soon as he chews us out, we're going to be, like, that's what we need to get motivated. And he was a particularly gifted at that skill, chewing butts out. So, like, and so is Coach Pace, who's the superintendent of schools now there in Lewis County. But, like, we, we were looking for it. Like, we anticipated, like, we just, we're going to go get our butts chewed, and that's going to get us fired up and motivated, and we're going to come out, and we're going to win the second half. And uh, some of us are like that. I mean, that's the way some of us are wired. We, we, the way we get motivated is for somebody to kind of get in our face and say, come on, you're better than this. You know, we like somebody to kind of push us and challenge us. And if that's the way that you get motivated, then prepare to be motivated uh, today and the rest of this month. Because we're in Matthew chapter 23, as Ebony mentioned. And this is the classic um, butt-chewing speech of Jesus. All right, so not, not what you were expecting to hear probably. But that's, that's exactly what this is. If you read the 23rd chapter before you came today... That's exactly what this is. Jesus is taking the religious leaders to task for taking what had been designed for good, faith. They're taking faith that had been designed for good and making it toxic. And for taking something that had been designed to help people and making it hurt people. And so Jesus is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 23. But I want to take you back. If you, if you look at chapter 22, you'll get the context. And you'll understand why Jesus said everything that he said in the 23rd chapter. Because in chapter 22, around verse 15, it says, The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him with his words. 
And then there's a series of stories, confrontations that take place between the Pharisees and Jesus where they question him about um, paying taxes to Caesar. They question him about marriage at the resurrection. They question him about which commandments are the greatest. They question him about whose son is the Messiah. Like they're trying to get Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And so my impression of this is that Jesus grows frustrated with these attempts that are happening all through chapter 22. And it, chapter 23 comes as a result of that. So I, I hear some frustration, uh, possibly anger. And then towards the end, there's kind of sorrow in this. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to do the first 12 verses today because we, we'll kind of go through this chapter section by section over the rest of the week. But let's start in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi for others, by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Jesus is just getting warmed up. Next week it gets really, really good. So I'm, I'm kind of forcing myself to stop right here. But, but you get the gist of it. You get why Jesus... Uh, is, is upset. And there's a couple of explanations, I think, that help make sense of what he's saying here. Uh, one of them is just kind of interesting to me, and it's in verse 1. I've always read this passage as being directed to the Pharisees. Like, he's, he's, he's like pointing a finger at the Pharisees and saying, you stop doing this, and you stop doing this, and you stop doing this. That's actually not who he's talking to. If you look at verse 1, it says he's talking to the, he's not talking to the Pharisees, he's talking about them. Now, they may have been within earshot, that's very possible, but he's talking to his disciples, and he's saying to his disciples, you see those folks over there, you see that, that religious establishment over there? Don't be like that. Don't be, don't imitate them. You may have to do what they tell you, don't imitate them. Don't act the way they act, because they are acting in bad faith. And then he gives three examples, three big examples. Number one... He gives their uh, hypocrisy because they do not practice what they preach. You hear, you hear that phrase often. You know, people talk about somebody not practicing what they preach. Jesus was the one that, that said that, and he said that about the religious leaders of his day. Number two is their uh, legalism. It says they tie up these cum, uh, cumbersome, heavy loads, and they put them on people's backs, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So it's all rules and no relationship. And number three is their ego. Everything they do is done for people to see. I want you to think about that statement. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's a statement of, of their ego. And he talks about the examples he gives don't make sense to us today because one of them is the, uh, phylacteries. Well, what is a phylactery? Well, I looked that up. You know, it's like a little box that somehow they wore on their forehead, which would have been weird. I don't know what that looked like. Or they wore it on their arm. But they contained certain scriptures from the Hebrew text. And they could make those boxes big and wide and showy and that kind of stuff. And there was tassels that they wore that reminded them to follow God's commands. 
I don't know exactly what it looked like, and I didn't go try to find pictures of it or anything like that. All I know is the Pharisees were making a show out of their faith. They were, they were making it so that they were telling everybody, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it was like the ancient equivalent of social media. So that's what they're doing. Everything that they do is done for other people to see. And Jesus is, is calling them to task for this. Like they want to, they everybody impressed with them. They want to sit at the place of honor. They want the most important seats. They want the titles. Call me rabbi. Call me instructor. Call me this. Call me this. You know, like that's everything is about them. And to quote one of the best theologians I've ever known, my grandmother, this is the, her summary of it. They's getting too big for their britches. Okay? Well, you understand that, right? They was getting too big for their britches. That's what's going on uh, with the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Like, that's not good. That's not what faith is supposed to produce. That's not the culture of faith. In this series that we're in, if you join us for the first time, if you're online for the first time, or just here in the room the first time, the series that we're in is about that. It's like, how do we create a culture of goodness in the church? Because sadly, in many churches, there's a culture of toxicity that has been created. And oftentimes, it's about those three things, hypocrisy, legalism, and, and ego. And if you got those three factors in a church leadership or in a church membership, uh, it leads to a toxic church environment or a toxic culture. So we're kind of talking about how do we create a culture of goodness in that? How do we help people? You know, churches should be about helping people becoming better people, including ourselves. It's like we're, we, we should be about helping people. We should be about helping people connect with God. We should be about helping people connect with service opportunities and, and chances to, to serve other people and making our community a better place. I mean, that church should be a place of uh, goodness. Andy Lawrence um, sent me a text after last week's message. Last week I kicked it off, and if you missed it, because it was Labor Day weekend, so if you missed it, please go back and try to listen to that message. I kind of gave some more specific examples, and I won't do that today. But um, after he heard that message, he sent me this meme. He sent me this on, the, on his phone right here. Christianity is about helping others and controlling yourself. When it becomes about controlling others and helping yourself, it ain't Christianity. And I... I really like that. I know with all memes, just like all good analogies, there's limitations. I know you can take that to the extreme. But, but I really like the idea of how Christianity should be about helping people. And churches should be about helping people. It's not about building a platform. It's not about growing a brand. It's not about growing you know, a following. It's about helping people. The end of the day, that, that's, you know, we exist, the church exists for that. Jesus said the greatest commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's love for our neighbor. That's how we express our love for God. And the church should all be about how uh, we love our, our neighbor. Now, this book that I'm using, and I, I'm encouraging you to read a bunch of books this, this series. But the, the church called Tov, which just means a church called good. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. Um, they put it this way on page 25. I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs from here. When you consider, and this is, they're kind of taking, the, taking this idea of like, okay, so we know who Jesus is and we know why the church was created. Why is it that many times the modern church doesn't reflect that? Or, you know, we know what faith was created for. Why did the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of Jesus, why did they not reflect that? This is what he writes. And she, Laura Basinger, uh, Beringer is a part of this as well. 
When you consider that Jesus intended to establish a church that was on a mission to, quote, proclaim good news to the poor and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it is tragically ironic that church leadership, formed as it is by the character of the leaders, can do so much harm. For some reason, church leadership at times seems to attract unempathetic, selfish narcissists. Whether narcissists simply find their way to the top, which must somewhat be true, or whether the top of the leadership tower attracts narcissists, which must also be somewhat true, far too many churches, churches excuse me, have narcissists in leadership, and they're predominantly male. If we are to have any hope of developing a goodness culture in our churches, these narcissistic, unempathetic leaders must be resisted or replaced. And to do that, we must understand how toxic cultures develop in the first place. Now they go on in this chapter and give like the early warning signs for toxic churches. And guess what the number one early warning sign for a toxic church is? The ego of the pastor. <laughs> or the preacher or the minister or whatever title you want to give to him or her. And he, that, you know, if you go to Mayo Clinic and look that up, like I, that jumped off the when he said they're predominantly male. I was like, whoa now, wait a minute. Um, but if you look up the Mayo Clinic definition of narcissism, that's where they get that from. There's a footnote there that took me there. But the Mayo Clinic of definition of narcissism is a narcissist is someone who cares only, they're, they're so infatuated with themselves, they care only about themselves and what other people think about them. And so they're willing to, like, like they can't take criticism very well. They have an excessive need for admiration. They have a disregard for others' feelings. Um, there's this sense of entitlement. And they are predominantly male for whatever reason that is. Uh, it comes from a Greek mythology, and there's a story of Narcissus, who was a hunter in Greek mythology that was punished by the gods for his vanity. And he was walking by this pool one day, and he saw his reflection in the pool, and he bent down to look at his reflection, and he fell in love with his own image. And he kept staring at his own image and realized that he would not be able to, to obtain what he was wanting because it was just an image in a pool and it was himself. And the story, there's multiple versions of it, but basically he ends up dying staring at himself. That's where we get the word narcissism because it's this cautionary tale to say, watch the ego, watch the vanity, watch the hubris and the pride, be careful about that. Now, the interesting thing to me as I'm thinking about this this week is, yeah, but the, I understand that the ancient Greeks gave us that story to kind of warn us, but in modern American society, we reward narcissism. Like, that, it's, it's rewarded. That, those are the people that get famous. Those are sometimes the people that get wealthy. Those are the people that we elect to the highest offices of the land. Those are the people that uh, we want running our countries and our states and those guys those are the people that in business we we elevate those guys or girls to ceo you know and many times sadly um those are the people that we give the stage to in churches those, those are the people that we that we we elevate to positions of leadership within churches and it's what's dangerous about it is not just about what happens with an individual what's dangerous about it is the culture that is created as a result of it because that's really what we're talking about here is we're talking about creating a goodness culture it's when when somebody is uh, somebody's ego is out of control and they're leading an organization what happens is the organization starts to revolve too much around 
a singular person. Or you know, we can apply this to outside of churches. We can apply it to political parties, whatever. It starts to revolve around a single person, a single personality. And you, you start to have folks that want to kind of ride the coattails of that, that are become yes people, yes men, yes women. They just kind of do everything the, the, the leader wants. And it creates this culture of toxicity. And if you look at those churches that we talked about last week, and you look at churches where they have, they've blown up, you know, they've grown super, super fast, and then they had this tragic collapse, a lot of times it was connected to this culture that had been created where there were, there were red flags that came up, but, but people didn't want to challenge the, the leadership because this, this toxic culture had been created. Um, and here's what they say about that. I'll, two more paragraphs, okay? No church is perfect, of course, right? So we know that, that churches uh, are always going to be struggling with leadership because as I ended last week's message saying, all our church leaders are sinners, including me. And everybody on our staff is a sinner. And everybody who attends this church is a sinner. So no church is going to be perfect. Uh, there will always be a combination of corruption and goodness in, in our churches. But we must continually strive for a culture of goodness because that environment will transform us into who we become. The longer we stay at a church, the more we will absorb the church's culture. David Brooks talks about this in The Second Mountain, which is another great book if you want to read another one. Um, but he says, never underestimate the power of a culture to transform us. And he's talking about culture at large, but it applies to church culture as well. Let us be clear about one thing from the outset. Choosing a church is about choosing a culture. And the culture we choose will form us into the people we become. So rather than choosing a church based on who preaches on Sunday morning or who leads worship or what type of music we prefer, we would be wise to make our selection based on the culture of the church community. And you kind of get what he's, what he's talking about there. He's talking about um, the idea, like, is, is the culture good? Is it creating goodness? Is it helping me to, to love God and love pe people? You know, is it helping me to become more in the image of Christ, to be formed more in the image of Christ? It's, it's not about, you know, well, do I feel good on Sunday when I leave? Or, or do I like the way the preacher talks? Or do I like the way the worship leader sings? Do I, you know, I understand, you know, there's, some, there's a level of importance to that. But it's far more important as to the people that I participate in Christian community with, and I come together and worship with them, and I come to the small group with them, and I serve together with them, are those folks helping me become more like Christ? Are they, are they helping me to, to be a, a better person? And am I helping them to become more like Christ? Am I helping them to become uh, a better person? Because, and he, he, he hits this, I think, very well, uh, preachers are temporary, and worship leaders are temporary, and worship styles are even temporary. I mean, it's, I mean, all this stuff that we tend to base our church decisions on or things that we like about the church, it's, it's all temporary. At the end of the day, it comes down to the culture of the church. And is it good? And in order for it to, good, to be good, it must be humble. It must, has to be humble in order for it to be good. Because Jesus said, the greatest among you must be the least. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There's plenty of examples about that. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I think he's talking about eternity there, a, a, a different, broader perspective. Um, now, I know uh, in a message like this, this is dangerous for me to talk about this. I got to talk about it because that's where the series takes me. It's dangerous for me to talk about it because people can be sitting there going, well, what about you? 
<laughs> what, what are you saying about yourself? Is this about, like, is there, are you doing some self-disclosure here? Is this, is this about you? Are you saying you have an ego? I'm going to confess something to you here. It's going to be shocking. This is going to be very, very shocking, okay? But I'm going to answer this question to you honestly. Do you have an ego? Do I have an ego? Yes. We all have an ego. Every one of us have an ego, and we all have to fight against it sometimes. There's all something we do that we think, I'm really good at this. But we have to fight against that ego. We, have to, we all have to push against that in whatever context we're in, in our work environments, in our family environments, in our church environments, in sports environments. I coach softball. And you know, players have egos, right? If they're good, maybe they got a little bit bigger ego. But if they don't keep that ego in check, it will destroy the culture of a team. You, you, see, you see it happen over and over again. Somebody thinks they're a superstar, and they will destroy the culture of a team if they let that ego get out of control. That's why it's so good to have, like, Coach, <laughs> that's a whole other story. I won't tell that one right now. Coach Pace, the worst chewing out I ever got in my life was Coach Pace, and it's because, I will tell it, it's because I came out of the football game, and I was upset because they pulled me out, and I was like, I can catch the ball too. And I f- felt like I was more important than that team at that time, and he tore me up. And you know why he tore me up? Because my ego, I was putting myself above the team. And he knows that that's going to create a toxic culture. And that happens in churches too. It's why you need people in your life that will do that. You need the coach paces in your life that will do that. You need elders. This is why I think it's good that our church has elders leading the church. Because I'm not the boss. I'm not, they hired me. They can fire me. And if my ego gets out of control, they can keep it in check. And they, they have. Okay, there's, I, I can probably tell you stories about Stephen Worley, you know, telling me, kind of laughingly with a smile on his face, like, I remember when I was your age, you know, came here when I was 30, I remember, I remember when I was that age, I, calm down a little bit, it's going to be okay, you know, I mean, I, you need people like that in your life that say, hey, dial it back a little bit, we all need people like that in our life, because in order to have a healthy church culture, in order to be a church that's good, we have to humble ourselves in the example of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Did not, consi- did not take advantage of that, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. That's where it starts. That's, that's what we have to do as a church body. We have to practice humility. I'll tell you about that one real quick. Um, my brother-in-law gave me that book about two years ago. I, t- I mentioned this when we were in quarantine, but y'all may not be watching in quarantine. About two years ago, my brother-in-law gave me that book and said, hey, man, I just read this. I think you'd really appreciate this book. If you can't see it, it's, the title is Ego is the Enemy. Now, <clears throat> when your brother-in-law hands you a book, like, hey, I think you'd really enjoy this book. <laughs> hey, how are you supposed to take that? Um, but I, pre- I, like, I read it. I read it. And it's okay. The book's not great i mean like it, i mean it was it, it wasn't like ooh, that's a life-changing book but this book sits on my desk not my desk but my my bookshelf facing out like that for me so that when i'm at my desk and i can look over there and and see it and just see ego is the enemy and the title just preaches to me and we have this thing seth and i have this thing where actually uh We'll, we'll do that to each other. Like he'll, you know, he'll mention, like we're just, we'll catch ourselves and we'll just be in conversation, catch ourselves. Uh, yeah, ego's the enemy. 
Or we might catch each other and say, yeah, ego is the enemy. It's just, kind of, it's just kind of that reminder to check yourself. Because it's got, all of us got one, and all of us have to fight against it, and humility is the only way forward. i got to stop right there because I want to tell you about a group that's doing a work that I would guess is very humbling. Um, well, I invited Crossroads to home here today, and so we're going we're gonna to take our contribution. I wanted them to do this during our giving, so if you are prepared to give today, go ahead and do that through your your devices, all the information's on the screen right there, or through the secure collection boxes. But um, we take a collection every single Sunday, and it's to support the ongoing ministry of this church. But occasionally we do a special collection, and um, like we did for the flood victims. And we sent a $21,000 check last week. I mailed that to the new Johnsonville Church of Christ uh, for flood relief. Um, 2019, we did one for Crossroads to Home Coalition, which was a new ministry that had come into Murray County that was going to serve our homeless population. And uh, they were just getting started, and they just established our 501c3, and so we said, let's raise some money for them. We'll give them half of our year-end contribution. Well, it ended up being a $65,000 check. And we surprised them with that at the very beginning of 2020. And uh, they're doing some incredible work. And so I asked Mark, and Pam may be presenting as well, I'm not sure, but uh, I asked Mark Kirschbaum, who's on their board of directors there, if he would tell us just a little bit about that work and the good things that have been happening. So there's that right there for you. Get my stuff out of your way. Thanks so much for having us here today.